to be here today. And I've realized that we now have an answer to the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Because I too want to give you applause. So this is the sound of one hand clapping. Today I want to try a kind of neuroscience performance art piece. (laughs) Sylvia told me the Spirit Rock audiences are very forgiving, and I'm going to enlist your, uh, the promise of that in what I want to talk about. So for me, there is also, in the interplay between thinking about the brain and thinking about meditation, something that may go beyond the word integration, beyond the word synthesis, into something of my life. Oh, way back in 1974, when I was in Joseph Goldstein's first class at Naropa Institute. It was in Boulder, and it was an evening class. He was the section person for the first class Ram Das was teaching since he'd been kicked out of Harvard. Instead of a lecture class in psychology, it was now called the Yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. And as an almost counterpoint to the florid devotional Hindu aspects, the fierce dialogues between Krishna and Arjuna on the battlefield, there was an unknown teacher enlisted by Ramdas to quiet the students who were all fired up at uh, Trungpa's playground in Boulder. So this class was at dusk, and Joseph starts teaching about sitting practice, and the room gets darker. It's getting darker and harder to see Joseph, and nobody's moving. So at one point he says, if you notice your experience carefully, you'll see that there arises in the mind an intention to turn on the light. (laughs) And I kind of fell off my cushion. Because in that one sentence, my understanding of the mind from neuroscience, introspection, and Buddhism came together the capacity to examine experience carefully, and the kind of selfless arising in the mind of an intention, based on our embeddedness in an environment that we are responsive to. And that set a tone for the next, it's coming up on 40 years. The brain is popular these days, and perhaps you've seen in the popular press pretty pictures of regions of the brain lighting up. Nobody says what those actually refer to, but it promotes a kind of thinking that something important goes on in that blob. And today I want to talk about a kind of corrective view 
that engages more of what we know. But I also want to talk about science as a lived human experience. What I'm going to talk about today really just comes from my personal experience of what moves me to the extent that it's consensus. Well, we tend to do what we can agree with. We also tend to fight about things we disagree on the way to establishing a consensus. But I regard you as all neuroscientists. We all want to make sense of our experience. All neuroscientists have is their own lived experience. So there's an interesting caricature of science in the popular mind. But often, Barbara and I share a a knowledge that it's all kinds of artistry, approximations for a kind of conception, pathfinding into the unknown. So that's a kind of preamble, because I want to talk about some topics. First topic is one that seems to be tied to what we might call a creeping reductionism. If we can understand the brain activity prior to a behavior, perhaps we can understand everything that goes into that behavior. (laughs) Part of these fun pictures are that things go on in particular regions of the brain. But there's an emerging view of the importance of dynamic networks. We come and do retreats at Spirit Rock to become more and more aware so that we can note, that we can love at any moment. I think that's the best test that I've ever heard about success. But we're often unaware of how much we are not aware of. So I want to talk a little bit about the depth of an intelligence of non-conscious processing. We've already talked about neuroplasticity. And not only are our brains changeable due to experience, but our conceptions of inhabiting our bodies are also flexible. I'm sure many of you have had interesting experiences about your body in stillness. So we'll see how far I get in the time that I have. So here is a remarkable picture. And it's not a still from the movie Tron. (laughs) This is actually a graphical representation of the preferred activity of neurons in a monkey's motor cortex as the monkey reaches in different directions. 475 cells recorded, this is the work of Georgopoulos and his group, absolutely classic neurophysiology. You can take a cell and isolate it, and you can see which direction of motion the monkey moves causes Uh, the uh, certain amount of firing of that cell. And if you 
tally up the activity and the preferred direction of just this small population of 475 cells. We have about 100 billion in humans, about a quarter of that in monkeys. You can do the mathematical sum of the length and direction of these vectors and you come up with this red line. And that red line is within 5% of the actual movement the monkey makes. So you can take a sparse sampling of neural activity and you can actually compute where the behavior will be. This kind of says, oh wow, you know, we, we, can, we can see inside and predict behavior and now we have some kind of causal connection between brain and body. This is just a sparse sampling of a very complex network. The way this is done is having lights turn on inside this three-dimensional space with a motion tracker on the monkey's arm. And if you do that, the, and you do it in space, and you analyze it over the actual movements, the red lines are the predicted trajectories of the continuous movement of the arm and the Yellow are the actual movements. There is an absolutely wow aspect to this. Now, I've done something a little related to this. For my PhD dissertation, I had people press a button to simply seeing a checkerboard that could appear either on the right or left of center. So we've heard today about breaths, alike but not the same. Notes, repeated but slightly different. Well, you know, I'm a guy who is influenced by sitting retreats, who then did a PhD in neuroscience. So what do I do? I have people do the simplest task. They have to lift their finger every time they see a flash of light. Only they have to do it thousands of times. So when you do this, I can show you some very cool dynamics of brain activity. We'll see if I can... I'm going to show you a movie that is 100 times slower than it actually happens. The flash activates the left visual cortex, then it's going to, in a kind of leisurely way, reactivate and then make its way to the other hemisphere via the corpus callosum. The left motor cortex, because we're using the right hand, becomes activated and the activation resolves in about a little more than a quarter of a second. So what I just showed you took the time between those two sounds. This dynamic activity is not captured in pictures that you see of fMRI activation. This is the average response to a great colleague of mine, a neuroscience graduate student, willing to, in this case, shave his head, 
spend nine hours a day hooked up for three days in a row so I could record 27 hours. I, you know, we do these very long non-human primate studies. This was a very long human primate study. So this was the average response of 1,300 lifting your finger. But here's a point. The data show that activations of the motor system that precede movement are themselves determined by yet earlier and co-occurring neural activity. The visual activation precedes the activation of the motor system because you're seeing a flash and lifting your finger. The activity that triggers the motor system is complex and it depends on task context. Barbara talked about how one node is determined by the context of what precedes it. So, imagine that you're a meditator and a neuroscientist and you're noting your experience carefully, are there things you can learn about the brain by introspection and then turn them into a scientific career? (laughs) Well, that actually is not a hypothetical question. This is a very influential paper by Amos Ariely and his group at the Weizmann Institute. It was published in one of the two top journals of science in the world, the journal Science. It's been cited 600 times since 1996. And what this little correlation graph shows is the dependence of a cat's visual cortex response to a flash on the ongoing activity that happened at the time the stimulus occurred. Amos Ariely, who is an extraordinarily interesting guy who is part of the Peace Now movement and you know, lives on the kibbutz and was, has so many aspects of um, a committed, socially engaged existence, sitting in meditation noticed how the same creak of a sound sounds differently moment to moment. And said, ah, I can do an experiment on this. I can, and he did. And he did it with extremely sensitive optical dyes. But, you know, when I was learning about evoked potentials, about these, repeat, these uh, recordings of the brain response to ongoing stimuli that occur like that flash in my experiment, The dogma was that there's noise of the brain ongoing and then when you have a stimulus, you can pull out a signal by averaging the signal in response to the uh, triggered by the stimulus occurring and the background noise just averages out flat. And we have these beautiful wave shapes. This was born by the understanding of signal averaging from Norbert Wiener's average response computer used at the end of the Second World War to unjam the Nazis' jamming of the Allied radio broadcasts. You just repeat the same message over and over, average it together, what's random, the jamming signal falls away, and the repeated message comes out. 
that was the thinking that I was taught about the brain. What this experiment showed is that the instantaneous activity, far from being noise, is actually creating a neural context that shapes our response moment to moment. Which is an insight that comes back to contemplative practice. It's a kind of gee whiz. Very interesting. So, with respect to my little experiment, and having asked people to do this thousands of times, I can then actually take all these different responses and make a histogram. Sometimes people are really fast in lifting their finger to the flesh, sometimes they're slower. And if you do that, and for each one of those vertical bars, now you create a cascade of muscle recording. I'm simply recording the muscle that's busy lifting the finger. And as you get slower, this is a, a measure of electrical activity on the vertical axis. This is time in milliseconds. And as people slow, as this one person slows down, his finger lift response simply marches across time. Do you see that? However, if I record from the motor cortex, now I see as this person is slowing down, actually his motor cortex keeps getting activated at the same point in time, only the activation rate is slowing down for a good deal of these. And then there's another mode he clicks into where in fact the activation is delayed. That means that this histogram actually represents different physiological modes. And all we're doing is the same thing, time after time. And it shows that the same thing is not the same thing, which you know anyway. So this being a new form of intellectual presentation, in a contemplative context, we'll put in a little pause. <laughs> this kind of technical information makes you feel confused. It's a good chance to observe confusion. <laughs> if it's really confusing, note it down and you can ask me later. So that's point one. We have a common sense vocabulary talking about brain activations of regions lighting up. Nobody says that hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent to perfect statistical and computer graphic techniques that can pull out two-tenths of a percent change in a signal and make it look like nothing and everything. But that is part of the data analysis when we show maps. So I want to talk about another scientist who's been deeply influenced by compassion practice, contemplative practice, Tanya Singer. 
She's a laboratory director of the Leipzig Max Planck Institute of Social and Cognitive Neuroscience, the youngest person, one of the very few women in the Max Planck Institute at the level that she's at. She has $3 million to do a longitudinal study of the training of compassion. She got into compassion as a lead-off of studying empathic responses. How do we study empathy? Because, you know, we often can confuse feeling empathic or feeling distress at someone else's pain as feeling compassion, compassion. Well, in this particular experiment, you uh, lie in a scanner and you get a shock to your hand. And sometimes the shocks are not painful and sometimes they are painful. And they can characterize um, analytically the network of brain regions that light up, so to speak, when you're feeling pain. You then can observe someone also being shocked. And lo and behold, for the most part, the same network lights up that was activated when you were shocked. In this particular experiment, everyone played a game, prisoner's dilemma neuroeconomic game, and sometimes the people they played with were very fair and trustworthy, and sometimes they cheated them. So here are uh, some uh, brain activation uh, depictions. This is uh, the uh, frontal insula regions. This is the anterior cingulate. This region is involved in conflict monitoring. Uh, the insula is, cortex is involved in monitoring the body state. It's a kind of region of the brain where your um, physical state and your uh, affective state about your physical state are represented. Here are data from 16 women. When they play with a fair player, this pain network activates. When someone has cheated them, they show less empathic response. It's important not to think that that empathic response is uh, these activations. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So I'm going to read you an important view by Larry Barcelou in an annual review of psychology chapter called Grounded Cognition. Fixed representations do not exist in the brain. Instead, multiple systems implement perception, action, cognition, where each system is capable of residing in one of infinitely many continuous states. Another moment of settle. Does this mean we should all just go home, fold our tent, or enter the stream of the implications of what it means to grapple with the truth of this statement? Over the course of learning, Larry goes on, states of these systems become coupled to each other and with the environment, 
that are effective in achieving goals. It's a much broader view of the problem space. That means that any of these activation locations are connected to other regions of the brain we may not be visualizing with our particular experiment or analytic method. And there are three f basic ways that you can think about analyzing connectivity. One is the anatomy. But the anatomy, that a path exists, doesn't mean it's used in a particular moment. Another is what's called functional connectivity, which are the correlations between activity in different regions. And then another analytic approach is called effective connectivity, which actually looks at what region is causing activity in what other region. In fact, one of the principal analytic tools for this is called Granger Causality, originally created to see what markets drove other what markets in the financial world. Consider these functions, executing actions, imagining executing actions, inhibiting clapping for Barbara, Attention, we've spoken a lot about. You're doing language comprehension right now. I'm doing a little production, I hope. We've recalled specific events that have happened to us. Working memory is a critical capacity to use multiple elements to stitch together our world or whatever we're trying to accomplish when you we used to call information when we didn't have all our phone numbers in our smartphones. And you have to remember what, you know, and it was a live person. You didn't get a text of the number, so you actually had to remember. This is the famous 7 plus or minus 2 rule, which is why we have phone numbers of a certain length from George Miller. My colleague Steve Luck at the Center for Mind and Brain has shown that our visual working memory only includes about six locations in space um, from which our eye movements build up our ongoing knowledge of the room we're in. So you only are keeping tiny snapshots of this room in your mind at once that allow you to stitch it all together to have a seamless, complex knowledge of the environment you're in. Reasoning, emotion, writ large, and vision. All of these functions were examined in a meta-analysis of fMRI studies, functional magnetic resonance imaging, the kind of study I just showed you regarding empathy, by Anderson and Pessoa. 2,603 studies were combined together, 824 papers, characterizing 1,052 brain locations. We, we had hearing in here, I forgot. So this is a picture not of locations of activation for a single task. This is uh, the left hemisphere of the brain from the lateral view from he here. This is this side of the brain. 
Here, if we split the brain down the center, this is the corpus callosum. This is looking at the medial surface of the left hemisphere, the medial surface of the right hemisphere. The color scale is the proportion of that region activated by all those tasks taken together. Vast swaths of the brain are involved in all of those tasks. This is a massive meta-analytic view. Now, how is, why is this so? Well, we see typically brains that look like this wonderful folded fMRI, uh, MRI structural image, but we're beginning to be able to even non-invasively examine the fiber bundles that connect different regions of the brain together. This is the work of Olaf Sporns and his group. And it's called rich club connectivity. We have hubs that have lots of connections and then other regions with fewer connections. This is a higher resolution image of 21 brains. And this is sparse for what's actually so. These are the connections of the visual cortex of one side of a macaque monkey brain, anatomically. Representations, that is to say, how the world out there is represented in here, even if we can say out there and in here for the purpose of discussion are real terms. There isn't an out there and there isn't an in here, which you may arise at understanding of contemplatively or didactically. Representations are complex spatiotemporal patterns of distributed neural responses. This is from Wolf Singer, gave this talk about a month ago at the first International Symposium of Contemplative Studies in Denver. This is a wonderful talk online. So here are the connections of cat cortex. Interestingly, there are connections from every sensory, from tactile, visual, and auditory modalities all converge. Our reality is essentially multisensory. When we say visual cortex, it's a misnomer. One of the ways scientists have been able to make sense of these kinds of data is through graph theory. And there's a kind of network that is highly interconnected locally and sparsely connected in long distances. And it's called a small world network. And this is, over the last five years, becoming a dominant way to begin to understand the connectivity patterns of the brain. And everything I'm telling you is highly macroscopic. We don't have, begin to have enough time to go into the molecular level, the cellular level. So I thought I was extreme with my thesis experiment, but just in February, Banditini's group published a paper 
running the same three subjects. I had three subjects for 27 hours each. They had three subjects, 10 days. They did a 10-day retreat in the magnet. And they did this experiment, really complicated. You had to tell whether a character was a number or a letter and present and push one of two buttons. From a sparse view of most fMRI studies, you say, well, that's going on in the visual cortex, a little, little in the language cortex. These actually, by analyzing 100 sessions in this experiment, they could show for a single individual all these cortical areas were involved in this task and things of the same color hung together in terms of their activation time course. In their, this was in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. They make an interesting conceit. They say, we don't know if the activation was actually involved in the task, we just know it happened, which actually is really interesting. Are there regions of the brain that learn about something happening in another region and they have no contribution to the response that's being generated? They're just sort of monitoring. It's tempting to think so. My dissertation actually showed that when a stimulus goes into one hemisphere and that same hemisphere controls the responding hand, that both hemispheres are involved in the activity before you respond. And that was extremely ill-received by an orthodoxy that said, you don't need the corpus callosum for that task. It's all within a hemisphere. These are questions. Remember, I'm not teaching you neuroscience. I'm riffing in ways that may be thought-provoking. And I'm not saying that everything is connected to everything. So here is an extraordinary image from 1982. Roger Totel showed a monkey this pattern and then examined with a particular way of looking at the activity of nerve cells in the occipital cortex, the visual cortex, if you'll let me use the word, of a single monkey. This is the visual pattern. This is the representation of the visual pattern. That looks like a camera. But is that consciousness of the pattern? (coughs) No. Just like the cells predicting the movement trajectory are not the intention to move. This is visible in people as well. Using fMRI, here you're seeing a ring. Here is a ring of activation in your primary visual cortex. So there is a mapping of space, of sound location, of sound frequency, many maps of body surface in the brain, But that's just the beginning. (laughs) Now I want to talk about time. 
When you close your eyes, one of the most prominent things that you can see if you were recording EEG are nice alpha rhythms between 8 and 13 cycles per second. They seem almost sinusoidal, very rhythmic. Here is a depiction of every 50 milliseconds. So you guys probably don't live in milliseconds as an everyday term. It would be five hundredths of a second, 50 one thousandths of a second. So these basically, every two is a cycle of the alpha wave. So you see a repetition of this sort of pattern at the back of the head. This is showing that even with this rhythmic pattern, there are moment-to-moment -moment differences in its spatial distribution, so that this pattern is not the same as that pattern. And if we mathematically sharpen the data, you actually see, you begin to see uh, the dynamics of activity, and this is, each is five hundredths of a second different. So Sylvia talked about birds flying, and I had a moment of, I wish I had remembered, because I attended a workshop at the Society for Neuroscience a number of years ago, where one of uh, well-known neurophysiologists introduced her talk about brain dynamics by showing a computer simulation of a flock of birds and said the best analogy that we have to neural activity moment to moment is something called a boyd. Now a boyd isn't just like a New York <laughs> bird. But a Boyd is a simulation where local rules are followed in a flock. And there is a Boyd app for your iPhone, if you want to get it. Um, and you can actually see how tiny, small deviations in one element cause whole flocking behavior and the dynamics of this. So this is a really good and important metaphor for what goes on in our brains. So now I'm going to speak about work of another neuroscientist deeply influential in my life, in the field of contemplative neuroscience, and in other, many other fields of science. A giant of a scientist and an extraordinary human being, Francisco Varela, who I'll talk more about this afternoon. Very dedicated Buddhist practitioner interested in how moment-to-moment -moment fluctuations of the mind change your physiology or reflect your physiology. And he developed a paradigm of investigation called neurophenomenology. Neurophenomenology is using someone who may be disciplined about their experience and be able to report in a reliable manner about the nature of their mind on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Here's the experiment. The experiment is that you're going to see a screen that looks like what we used to have disconnected antennas. There are all these analogies in my head that no longer pertain to common technology. <laughs> TV without the antenna doesn't cut it for young people. So imagine white visual noise, and that doesn't cut it for people who are not engineers. 
But have you ever seen those 3D stereograms or the magic eye books? If you defocus your eyes, you can see out of the noise pops a 3D structure. And you, in fact, if you practice that, can notice that your mind can be prepared to see that. What Varela and Antoine Lutz, who was the first author on this paper, did is they asked people to report how prepared they were to see a 3D pop-out and then press the button when they saw it. So here's when the 3D image is presented to the unfocused eyes. It could come out. If you stare at the white noise, you don't see anything. This is when the 3D disparity in the white noise pops out and you see a cube. So this is now, I like the title of this slide, it's one of those notes I like, transient evidence of a prepared mind. I mean, what does it mean to write that on a PowerPoint slide? <laughs> Here, these data are actually from Matthew Ricard, who is not indicated in the paper, but Francisco told me. He says he's well prepared to see a 3D pop-out on these trials. And what's, this is before the stimulus comes on. There is, this is because there's like a seven-second period of getting ready. This, these lines represent instantaneous synchronization between his left and right frontal hemispheres. And now this is the pattern as... Uh, he sees the 3D stereogram, and this is where he says, I see it. This is the pattern when he says, I'm not prepared. Before the stimulus, there is the, a lack of this activity. And the pattern is much more disorganized, and later in time it converges. Transient evidence of a prepared mind. <laughs> you can, this uh, website has lots of wonderful talks, and uh, Wolf Singer gives a great talk about what I've been talking about um, just a month ago. Now I'm going to briefly talk about um, non-conscious processing. This is a picture presented, that was painted by a man who has never seen. It's a blind artist. What do we know on a daily basis that we have no explicit knowledge of? You know, we think we see things. But how much do we actually know that is not because we see? You can look him up on the web. There's a Discovery uh, TV show with him feeling a model of the Duomo in Florence, walking around it, and then drawing it in 3D with perspective. 
But you know that I walk and I'm measuring distance by time. I hear you and I see in 3D from, with my ears. Here's an interesting graph. This is uh, work by Eve Isham. Here's the job. You're going to be looking at a clock on a computer screen and you're going to look at the clock and voluntarily push a button and you're going to note what time the clock says when you initiate an intentional act to push the button. When you push the button, the button doesn't make any sound, but you hear a tone from the contact closure of the button. Because it's a sound, I can delay it artificially so that you can push the button, but a few milliseconds later, I can move the sound so you actually get feedback of when you push the button, delayed in time. It turns out that if I delay when you hear the tone, it moves forward when you think you intended to make the movement. So, Eve and her colleagues say, we do not take our findings to indicate that conscious intention has no role in behavior, but rather that the intuitive model of volition is overly simplistic. It assumes a causal model by which an intention is consciously generated and is the immediate cause of an action. Our results imply the intuitive model has it backwards. Generation of responses is largely unconscious and we infer the moment of decision from the moment of inferred action. The Buddha didn't quite teach that particular formulation, though you may have thoughts about how he had that insight. I <laughs> work. <laughs> Now, we all know about thinking outside the box. This is one of these completely wild experiments that's published in one of the top journals in psychology. You take a hundred undergraduates and you randomly assign them either into a lab room that has a five foot by five foot by five foot box and you go inside the box. Or you can be outside the box. And what you're going to do is you're going to give them a test of creativity. It's called the remote associates test. It's like what word can be tied to measure, worm, or video? The answer is tape. Tape worm, tape measure, videotape. If you were randomly assigned to sit outside the box, you do better on the task. That's Hmm? Are you teasing us they really did this? They really did this and this really did get published and it really works. That's why there's a field called embodied cognition. There are many experiments like this. If you ask if you drop your books on the floor and you give somebody a warm drink to hold, they'll think you're nicer than you know, this has gotten a lot of press. Sylvia was actually talking about this, though you didn't know it. This is another remarkable experiment, also published in Psychological Science by a group at the University of Michigan called um, by John Ioannidis. If you do a 
very demanding task where you have to subtract digits going backwards, right? If you take a walk in an arboretum versus in city streets, you do better after the walk in the arboretum. This is the explanation. According to attention restoration theory, interacting with environments rich with inherently fascinating stimuli invoke involuntary attention modestly, allowing directed attention mechanisms a chance to replenish. That is, the requirement for directed attention in such environments is minimized, and attention is typically captured in a bottom-up fashion by features of the environment itself. So the logic is that after an interaction with natural environments, one is better able to perform on tasks that depend on directed attention abilities. Unlike natural environments, urban environments contain bottom-up stimulation, car horns, that capture attention dramatically and additionally require directed attention to overcome the stimulation, to disengage from, avoiding traffic, ignoring advertising, making urban environments less restorative. This environment is not the urban environment. I don't know if any of you have seen Deb Roy's remarkable TED talk called Birth of a Word, where he videotaped 90,000 hours of the first five years of his child's life. (laughs) Created a 3D virtual environment of his home and then did automatic data mining of the video to look at relations between where his baby was and all the different caretakers and ran audio simultaneously and is actually able to code where in space and when the first time a word was used. And what this graph shows is that as a child, as his son, got ready to speak the word, whatever the word was, when the job shifted from semantics and association to creation of the sound, the discourse of the caregiver's complexity decreases. Before This is the time the kid says the word correctly. There's an unconscious resonance where the caregiver, the parent, nanny, babysitter, actually understands that the agenda is now shifting to physical production from understanding and doesn't confuse the matter with too many highfalutin concepts like I'm overloading you today. (laughs) Isn't that cool? I direct you all to see this video, the first eight minutes of which are astounding because there is no visualization of how scientists think about statistical learning that has ever been done that's as effective as this. So, non-conscious processing is deep and can be thoughtful outside of awareness. 
nature restores, might contemplation, I think many of us could say, yeah. This maps to Sally McFeeg, who is a Christian theologian who was a presenter last fall at the Dalai Lama's Mind and Life Conference. She has a concept of the wild space of the mind. And I just also love it. Coupling between brains makes one system of two people interacting. There's a great paper on that in Trends in Cognitive Neuroscience, if you're interested. Now, we can... It's 12.19. Do you want to do your 10 minutes and take a break and come, and come back 10 minutes early? I've, I've now got 10 more, 10 more minutes. It's better if I finish. I, I, can, I can finish and then you can still talk and you, they, can, they can go. Okay. Only if we'll be reshaped by the experience. <laughs> you will be reshaped. I don't know if it's a better shape. <laughs> this is classic work out of Michael Mersenick's lab at UCSF. A different kind of hand makes a different kind of brain. So you know that each of your fingers has a corresponding cortical representation that can be found in your somatosensory cortex. So if I tap or use a little brush on a single finger, I can find regions where your fingers hang out in your cortex. So this would be the pads on the digit four is over here. This is looking in area three of the side of a monkey cortex. And um, the third digit pads are represented in this spot. Each one of these dots is a location of a recording electrode. If I take a monkey's hand and I do half of a Spock salute, you know, from Star Trek, and create what's called syndactyly, now I have four effective fingers, because two always move together. If you then go in and record, the cortical territory that was separate for the two digits, that border now dissolves, and this area is stimulated. Doesn't matter where you, which one of these you touch. In fact, pianists can have a version of this called central dystonia, where the territory enlarges for each finger, and two fingers you intend to move one and both move. Here's a task where a monkey's center here, you rest on a little vibrating uh, knob, and you have to determine if two frequencies are the same. What happens is that the receptive fields on that finger all begin to centralize around this location. They're disorganized in a digit that doesn't have to do that task. And the cortical territory of just this little part of the finger, it greatly expands. Not only that, its temporal sensitivity increases. So you stimulate it, and it has a bigger, sharper response. 
practice changes something fundamental. It differentiates us. Here are neuromagnetic responses from musicians compared to non-musicians. String players who Barbara talked so eloquently about having to find and make adjustments on the fingerboard, the tips of your fingers, independent of calluses, which she could give you a whole hour talk on calluses, the same physical intensity, they put air puffs on the fingers, the fingertips of string players give a much larger response. Here is uh, for individual violinist listening to a violin sound versus a trumpet sound. Here the trumpeter hearing a trumpet sound doesn't respond so much when it's a violin sound. Left hemisphere, right hemisphere. This is wild. This is work by Alvaro Pascal Leon. Trans, uh, trans, transient magnetic stimulation, transcranial magnetic stimulation is the ability to use a very powerful magnetic coil put over your head that can transiently knock out or stimulate regions of your brain. And this was done to characterize the amount of cortical territory dedicated to motor sequence learning. So you can put this coil on a pantograph. You can just move it around and if you then go and then your finger might jerk. And you can see where your representation of your finger movements are by where you have to put it in space. So here's a condition of individuals practicing a sequence on the piano two hours a day for five days. And every day they do an analysis of the territory that is going to, uh, how large on your scalp surface the territory is that will evoke a movement. As you practice, it grows across the week. Here, individuals sit at the piano, but they do not play it. Real and imagined, imagined is real. <laughs> Do compassion and loving kindness practices lower the threshold for loving and compassionate actions? This is an open question, but we have some good examples, I think. Embodiment is not fixed. Here's an intriguing title. First-person experience of body transfer in virtual reality. Here's how you do it. You spend several minutes walking around in a 3D uh, virtual headset in an environment where your movements cause what you see to shift. So you look around and you see what's around. So now you are embodying a new visual environment. And then, after a few minutes of that, you are transported. This is a study done exclusively on men. And either you're going to have a first-person perspective of being this girl. 
and you're sitting in a chair and you're looking down and when you move your head down you see her hands, which are now your hands. And this woman next to you is going to suddenly decide to slap you. <laughs> or you don't have a third, you don't have a first person perspective, you are sitting in a fixed view and you're watching, here's the girl in the chair, this is the woman about to slap her. You have a third person perspective. You then are brought up with ever the perspective you'd had to the ceiling, like you're looking down. And now you view the slap. If you had a third person perspective, 3PP, your heart rate before the slap doesn't change much during the slap. But if you spent those few minutes thinking you were the girl in the chair, because when you looked down you saw her and the slap person was right up next to you, your heart rate deceleration jumps up. <laughs> Finally, I'm going to talk, be done in just a moment. Here's a task, this is by uh, Ariki and Sakuro, this is a remarkable group at the Tokyo School of Dentistry, teaching a monkey to use a rake to get food. So use the short rake to get to the longer rake, brings the longer rake to him, then uses the longer rake to get the food, takes the food, eats the food. Now, there are cells in your motor cortex that are responsive visually. So if you put a light on the end of your hand, the light will stimulate cells in your motor cortex that correspond to um, movements uh, where you can move your fingers. So there's a mapping between your actual motor control and that location of your body. Right? That's so you, you know, and we do, we need that. We need to see what we're manipulating. So those cells, you identify a cell that responds to an LED at your fingernails. Fine. Now, you just hold this rake once you've spent two weeks knowing how to use it. Cells still light up at the ends of your fingers. Now, you put some food and you can use the tool with intention in a purposeful context. Now, the visual sensitivity of that same, those same cells extends the full length of the tool. To your brain, your body includes the tool. It's one thing to talk about thousands of hours with a bow. Our embodied sense of location is maintained by the regularity of sensory and environmental conditions. Thus changing sensory experience can give us an out-of-the-body experience. Our use of tools, and by extension musical instruments, cars, iPhones, cherished objects, zafus, even cyberspace, literally extends our body representation to the environment though at different schools and scales. 
So it's very nearly lunchtime, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit uh, just now about a practice of uh, reflection and uh, perhaps decision that you might want to make uh, during the lunchtime. My, uh, when Cliff talked about uh, intention, oops, I'll just hold it. When Cliff talked about intention, <coughs> Uh, and that sometimes we have volitional intention, sometimes intention arise, or we have a, 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 an intention that causes a volitional action to happen, like signing up in the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas. Sometimes uh, we have uh, an intention that we don't really remark on, but which effectuates action anyway. I, I first discovered this, uh, one of the ways I first discovered this, I heard my teachers always say, every action is preceded with an intention. I'm, well, but, and I, and my first really dramatic awareness of it was standing in front of a water fountain, on retreat, standing in front of a water fountain, about to bend over and take a drink. Because at that moment, I knew that I wasn't magically transported from wherever I'd been to the front of the water fountain. That at, what had happened in me is that um, a sense of uh, dry, dryness or thirstiness had arisen in my mind. And I didn't know that consciously. And probably a rep uh, uh, the desire, it's uncomfortable, so the desire to end that discomfort arose in my mind. Uh, the representation of the water fountain and where it was uh, apropos to where I was at that time must have arisen in my mind. The impulse to have a drink of water arose in the mind, and walking happened. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at the uh, water fountain. used to be an ad on TV for some uh, medication for heartburn, that said, uh, I can't believe I ate the whole thing. Do you remember that? <laughs> that also, a lot of intention to eat more and more happened, but uh, not, not with conscious uh, monitoring. Okay, so this is what I'd like to really say to you. Uh, uh, this, is, this wonderful day is in part uh, uh, an offering of the Sangha of Thousands of Buddhas, an initiative of friend-raising and fundraising that's happening in Spirit Rock. And I mean both of those quite sincerely. We've really flourished as a community for uh, 20-some 20, 20 years now on this land. And one of the things that people have remarked over time is as people have come together to do what was primarily a contemplative practice, they didn't have very much opportunity to get to be friends and feel themselves to be a spiritual community. They came, they sat down, they were quiet, and a half hour before they went home, they chatted some, and then they went home. And feeling ourselves like-minded in our spiritual inclination and interest and the kinds of uh, spirituality that we understood, these are all like-minded people, people we might like to be friends with. So we began to think in terms of community building. Also, uh, uh, 
Uh, it's a community that needs a facility that can operate, and this is a pragmatic part. My intention in talking to you at this moment, again, is to help you uh, build this lower part, rebuild this lower part of the campus. You know from being up at the top part, of, if you've been up there at all, that it's quite beautiful. It's 10 years, it's more than 10 years since that facility was operational. And it looks like day one. It is kept in such extraordinary good condition. It looks like no one was ever there. A part of our being here is the practice of intentional housekeeping and really being scrupulous. Our groundskeepers are fabulous. And our people who come here on retreat leave their rooms as they were when they came in. The, the place is perfect. And... Um, and this isn't perfect. I mean, you may have noticed that the ceiling is it's not going to fall in on us this afternoon, but we really need to replace it. I actually will spare you the some fine print about what's the matter with this building because some of it is very unpleasant to say. <laughs> but it won't fall down on you. It's not hazardous, but we really do need to replace this building. We really, it's, besides, it's made out of trailers. It's made out. It's made out of fourteen trailers backed up against each other. Those, those temporary buildings, and they're supposed to have a, a shelf life of twenty years, and ours are standing thirty. So you can do the math. They are outlived their shelf life, as have the two trailers out there, as have the staff trailers out further on the other side, of the maintenance crews and the people who keep this place working. So this whole lower campus needs to be replaced, and it will be replaced. We are hopeful that the building will start uh, in the summer of 2013. The budget for it is is substantial, and uh, actually uh, I think about two-thirds of it is more than half is pledged, and, and people have, uh, with the possibility of making a substantial gift given, very substantial gifts, for which you may be one of them, and for which we are very, very grateful. I am very grateful. Everyone is very grateful. It depends on those kinds of gifts. In addition, it has always been my feeling, this is the second capital campaign we've done. When we did the first one 15 years ago, I said I felt like there could be a, a gift given to that campaign from not one very uh, substantially uh, financially endowed person, but from people like myself who could give a gift, but not an enormous gift. But I wanted to give a significant gift. And they needed a million dollars to build that upper beautiful hall. So doing the math, I thought, well, if a thousand people each gave a thousand dollars, we'd have that hall. And if we divided the $1,000 over three years, as a matter of fact, if people gave us their credit card numbers <laughs> so that every day, every month, $27.80, I think it is, would come out of the credit card, they'd hardly feel it because it would be 83 cents a day. And uh, at the end of 36 months, they would have given a gift of $1,000 which for most people is a very significant gift. Most of us can't easily give a gift of $1,000 straight away. But over three years, I said, I think people could. And I like the idea 
of not personally, I love it for people who can, to endow a whole building. And I love the idea of, especially for the main meditation hall, for a thousand people to be able to drive in the gates and say, I built that, along with 999 other people, but we're all equally responsible for having built it. It suits my it, it suits my philosophy about how communities and, and societies should work. It suits my politics. It just fit with me. So I did that 15 years ago. I said to people, let's do that. Give $1,000, we'll get 1,000 people. And we did. We got 1,300 people. $1.3 million got collected from that. So here we are again. Uh, now, 15 years later, and uh, we need to do the rest of this building. There are people who will, in an individual gifts, help us enormously. I would like for 3,000 of us to each give $1,000 over time. We announced it last August, and almost 600 people have signed on. My pin, which you get for signing on, is on my sweater, but if you look around, somebody near you will have one of those pins. Uh, the, I, I enjoy telling people that uh, the benefits of belonging is uh, you get a present, we send you a book or a CD when you sign up. You get to sign the scroll, which is outside today, and you may see we have one finished scroll. In the beginning, I said, well, you know, what, what sign up it should be a pledge, like a Alexander Hamilton. And every, so you'll see a signed pledge, all scroll, all finished. There's another one that's working now. At the end, we'll frame them and put them all up in the new meditation hall, because this two to three million dollars which we're going to raise is going to build the new community hall down here which is going to be gorgeous the plans are all done they're all okayed by all the boards of supervisors it's in its own way as beautiful as the upper hall somewhat bigger the main hall because there's sometimes four or five hundred people who come here of an evening and we are imagining this going into decades and decades and decades standing for for as long as we can imagine so really what i wanted to say is that i hope you'll join us i'm very very excited about the fact that it's so easy to do it's uh, uh, so important for me to not have a bar that everyone can't um match i think most of us can do that, especially with the way of having it paid over three years. I think it's for more than our community, though. I think in these troubled times, of course, times have always been troubled, but the world is smaller now and more crowded, and the earth itself more jeopardized, I think, than it's ever been. And in these times, the message of what we teach here, the message of paying attention to our thinking, and organizing ourselves so that we have a degree of equipoise in our minds and our hearts. So that really, if you think of your practice as mine, as having that sort of equipoise that keeps the, uh, keeps, that banishes the bars to the natural compassion expressing itself. I don't actually think so much about developing compassion, although I love and I support all those uh, projects that, that in, in which we practice how we would be if our minds were clear. But I fundamentally believe that if our minds were clear, 
then compassion would be self-arising, that compassion is the natural state of human beings. When someone cries, we reach out. We just do. It's, the, it's, it's one of, the, I think, probably the most glorious attribute that human beings have. We can think, we can write poetry, we can make music, and we can take care of ourselves and each other. And I think in this time when the world is so imperiled that that particular message which is taught here in a Buddhist context but which is fundamentally non-sectarian, transsectarian. Um, what is my friend Zalman called? Transparochial. It's bigger than anybody's parish. The parish is the world. It's a transparochial parish. And that's what we have to teach. And our teaching here, you know that in the many programs. So we have a message that's good for us and that's good for the whole world. And to be able to have a facility where we can continue to teach the, that word. The Buddha, uh, in one of his very um, important to me sermons, uh, was sending out people that he trained to teach far and wide. And he said, go forth and teach this holy teaching in the idiom of the people. And I think that here at Spirit Rock we are really doing that. And more and more we are teaching online, we're teaching in, in courses in other places, but still to have this facility as a place to which people can come, where we can really maintain and continue to deepen the, the spirit of intensive practice. That's what we need to do now. And I really, really, really want it to happen with the help of many, many, many people so that uh, together we'll each of us drive in the driveway and think I built that. So during the lunchtime, I'd like to invite you to take your lunch, eat it in or out. It's a gorgeous day. Uh, often on retreat, we, uh, we have people do eating meditation and we ask them not to talk in the lunch. By all means, visit that I, I mean it seriously about friendship that we're building, friend raising as well as fundraising. Susan, what, dear? Um, Susie, maybe you want to mention a thing about if people can get seven people to join the front of house. <laughs> 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 okay, I'll just put that into. As of the other day in class, I said, you know, I just, I, it's such an inspiring message. And someone said, well, you inspire when you say the message. So I said, well, if I have to go to everybody's home, I'll inspire. I'll just go to everybody's home. So that seemed quite a lot. But then we decided we, 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 uh, within this initiative is this new initiative. If you as a member uh, convince or invite, that's better than convince, invite and convince seven of your friends to join the number eight being the Eightfold Path, of course, to join, uh, and they say uh, electronically or on the phone or any other way, by the way, look at us. Uh, we live in uh, 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 Oakland, and we live in El Cerrito, and we live in uh, Palo Alto, and eight of us are joining, seven of us are joining so-and-so. The initiative is I'll go to your house. I'll spend a morning, I'll spend an afternoon, or I'll spend an evening, your choice. And I will teach Dharma to you and your seven friends for that period of time. So I seriously mean it about house to house. Uh, so what can I say? Do it. Uh, uh, take a deep breath. 
when the mind feels lifted up, everybody looks beautiful. Look around you, see the people you know, see people you don't know. Have a lunch of uh, friend-building practice, and we'll be back in one hour at uh, 1.45. Let's keep the room quiet, otherwise it'll be a big uproar. Let's go out and then visit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.